Hi there, you're listening to the podcast What Are You Going To Do With That? of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, a PhD candidate, and in each episode I chat with a young researcher to learn more about their academic journey. For more information on former and future guests, check out the What To Do With That accounts on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Don't be shy to like, comment and share. Let's get started with this episode and introduce you to Tahira Anwar. Tahira completed scientific high school in Rome, after which she continued with a Master of Science at the Sapienza University of Rome, with a major in biological science and a minor in physiopathology. She has just recently, in December 2019, completed her PhD in biochemistry on the role of Becklin-1, localization in autophagosome biogenesis, at the <laughs> University of Helsinki in Finland. During her career, Dr. Anwa has presented her work at 13 international conferences, taught five courses, and was a member of the Helsinki Seminars for Understanding Nature Journal Club Committee. She has also been on an international research visit to the University of Tartu in Estonia and has worked at the University of Helsinki with imaging equipment. Tahira's main research interests are mammalian cell culturing, conventional cloning, bacterial transformation, DNA plasmid work, western blotting, immune precipitation, immune fluorescence, confocal and electron microscopy, and image analysis. Her work, <laughs> that was good. I think it was all right. Or do you think I should do it again? <laughs> Very good. No, 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 no. Very good. Very <laughs> Thank good. you. Her work has been published in international peer-reviewed journals, such as the Journal of Cell Science, Biology Open, and Cells. Welcome to Hira. I'm very happy that you agreed to join us today. You are my first guest in the field of biochemistry, following topics such as international law, political science, and even urban planning. And I myself come from humanities and social sciences. So please forgive me if I ask any silly questions during our chat. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Hi, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. And I, as I said, I hope to raise to the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this was a really nice surprise. So thank you. You're very welcome. We're happy to have you here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. To loosen up a bit, I brought my regular amaretto with me, which is ah, Italian. This Aronno. Yes, I know. I know. I recognized it. <laughs> so I'm going to pour myself some. And you have with you? Yes, and I have my uh, cup of chai, warm cup of chai with cardamom. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it smells good. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, cheers. Cheers. Chin chin. <laughs> I have a few short questions to start with. And the first okay, one is... I'm ready. Great. The first one is... What is a typical Finnish breakfast and how is it different from what you had for breakfast in Italy? Oh yeah, so it's it's very different. So Finnish people uh, usually have salty breakfast. Uh, so with they, they use a lot of rye bread, so rye bread with the cheese, butter, maybe salmon and you know salad and stuff like that. So some some sort of sandwich. Uh, me, as an Italian, I would ha have the total opposite, which is a sweet breakfast. So for me, breakfast is usually cookies, Nutella, jam, and tea, and so on. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a very big uh, difference. And Finnish will mostly drink coffee. So they are heavy drinker of coffee. So coffee and salty stuff, bready stuff. And then on the other side, meats like uh, yeah, jam, Nutella, chocolate and uh, chai and anything sweet. I cannot stand the salty things early morning. So I'm more like you then. I also like the sweet stuff. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Very good. But I wouldn't be able to do it without the coffee, though. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. No, I... I, I I don't drink coffee so much. I drink cappuccino that I can have, but uh, I, I like, I really like chai. So that comes, I guess, from my origin. So chai is a must for me. Wonderful. Yeah. You're not, I mean, that's yeah. a really good thing to have. <laughs> <laughs> If you could have an endless supply of one kind of food or drink, I suppose, what would it be? <sighs> God, this is so difficult. I mean, I like food, so, you know... Uh, or maybe a few pizza things pizza okay pizza and gelato 
Okay. <laughs> That's easier. Pizza. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love gelato. Like, uh, I mean, I really like it in a way that, you know, my mom and dad, when I was a child, they were used to tell me, like, you should marry someone that makes gelato because I would eat. <laughs> That's another thing, like breakfast uh, between lunch uh, or whatever, like any time I could eat. But like, if I need to choose, then I think uh, gelato and pizza. Yeah. Sounds like a good decision. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have a lot in common. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. (laughs) If you were stranded on a remote island, what three items would you want with you? Hmm. Oh, oh my God. Let me think. Uh, God. Would you be able to be on an island without your phone? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's fine. Like I mean, I, I, I sometimes I do time off without without those. Okay. I don't know something that I could enjoy, like a book. Is that a boring thing? Like a bunch of books, something that I could do some crafting, like you know, food. Like is that another yeah. thing? Yeah, pizza like, and know, music. Maybe music. Yeah. <laughs> Music, uh, I would love music. I don't know, like uh, uh, these boring answers, but like, okay, music, some books, and um, no, apart from the food thing, something that I could craft, like I could do, like, I don't know, paint or do something or something. I, I don't know, like, yeah, it's a bit tricky. That actually leads <laughs> to my next question, which is... Oh, great. What hobby do you wish you had more time for or would you like to pick up? Um, well, I recently started uh, trying knitting because that's also something that comes from Finland. Like there, a lot of people do knitting. Okay. So I, I started, but then I gave up a bit. Uh, so that's something that I would like because also my mom does a lot of knitting. So that's something that I would like to do more. Um Painting, that was kind of when I was a child, uh, something I liked doing then, back then. Uh, but, you know, then I moved to Finland and then, you know, I came back here. So I don't have even the equipment. Um, reading, I do reading. That's something that I always do. Listening to music that I always do. So probably something that is, you know, totally different, like these kind of hobbies, like uh, knitting or sewing or uh, painting drawing i like drawing as well i'm i'm not saying i'm talented but that's something to I, really I, create I something like yeah yeah something because something that i did recently like for my for my thesis for my phd thesis was drawing all the figures uh, so I do enjoy that. Of course, that was on, on a computer, but do, I do enjoy that part of the kind of artistic uh, thing. So, yeah, I would say something like that. Oh, that's nice that you could incorporate it into your work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a bit, yeah. All right. My last short question is, if you were a superhero, what would your name be? Oh, <laughs> okay. My nickname is Panda. Okay. Uh, I call myself Panda, but I don't think that suits very much uh, as a superhero name I don't know Tara because I have one of my friend that calls me Tara like as a kind of nickname so Tara is is, is cute very short straightforward right. could that be an option it could be but it doesn't really say anything about your superpower right I don't know if like maybe ah, punching okay. panda is mm. something catchy but... <laughs> no punching panda <laughs> uh, hmm I don't know. I always wanted to be invisible. Like, I would love to be invisible. I would like to have that superpower. Invisible Tara, really? (laughs) That could be. I'm not sure. All right. Close enough. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. All right. So that was it with the short questions. And now I'm ready for the big part. You've completed a scientific high school in Rome, and then you went straight to a Master of Science. Um, What is a scientific high school? Is that the equivalent of a BA degree? Um, No, bachelor... So, university... My university was five years, so I had a bachelor and a master. So, it's like three plus two. So, usually you choose the high school somehow that that will bring you to... Uh, to choose kind of the better university subject that you want to study. So I had this five years of scientific high school and then I started my uh, university degree. So when you sign up for these studies, you really go for a full five years? 
Five years, yes. It was a five-year degree. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> I know. Interesting. <laughs> yes. Different system. Yeah. Of course, um, yeah, it was so that the first three years were similar for everybody because it was biological sciences. And then uh, for the uh, last two years, which is kind of what I call master, you have to choose. And I chose physiopathology uh, and then other people choose like different things. All right. And then I was wondering how the move from Rome to Helsinki came about. Did you apply for multiple universities or scholarships? Mm -hmm. Or was there something mm -hmm. at the University of Helsinki that particularly fits the research you wanted to do? So when I was doing my master, I worked around two years and a half in a research laboratory for my master thesis. So that's when I got interested uh, somehow in, in, in science and in, in doing research. Uh, so then I thought somehow that, okay, the PhD was kind of the natural thing uh, after a master and I wanted to, to do the PhD abroad. So I was applying to kind of open positions, but then I was also writing um, supervisors uh, because I was interested in their work. So that's what I did with my uh, former supervisor. So she was working uh, on autophagy and I, during my master thesis, also worked uh, on something related to autophagy, hypoxia and autophagy. So then I wrote her saying that, okay, this is me, my CV, blah, blah, blah. And uh, would you have like possibility for me to do a PhD? And then she first told me no, because she didn't have like the, the means. But then after a few months, she wrote me back and she said, are you still interested? I would have now uh, a possibility. So then I went to Finland for an interview and then that's how I ended up there. <laughs> Great. So you yeah. took the angle yeah. from looking for the researcher you wanted to work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing kind of both because I felt that maybe I was limiting a bit myself by just applying open position. So then I wrote like um, a few researchers that I was interested that, okay, I it would be interested to work with them. All right. And then what was it like to move uh, universities and countries and cultures? Was it diff What was difficult or what did you enjoy? Yeah. And was your family uh, supportive? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I've been very lucky with my family because I come from a background which is, you know, from Pakistan. And it's a Muslim background where we know that women don't often might have like the possibility to do a lot of things. So from that point of view, I was very lucky. Uh, because, you know, I had people that right after high school were saying to my mom and dad, okay, she has studied enough, you can marry her. But uh, yeah, I know. I mean, that's like regular It's stuff, a good thing you know? that the listeners can't see the look on my face. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, but from that point of view, my mom and dad were always very supportive. They said that, okay, if she wants to study, she will study. Uh, so they were supportive of me going abroad. So they, they never like, you know, uh, how do you say, mm, had anything against it. Um, how was the move? Um, tough, I have to say, because I lived always with my family. Uh, and I moved and I was around 30 years old when I moved there. So I started my PhD kind of later. Um, and culture, it was like, oh my God, it was really a shock because, you know, Finland and Finnish people are very, very different from us Italian. Uh, they are very close up. They are not very talkative. They are not very chatty, uh, kind of almost not very welcoming at first. So I found myself in, um, in, in, in this different country. And I remember the, the shock in a way. Uh, also at work, you know, they're very close up. It's very common for them not to say hi, even if they cross you on the corridor. So that was tough for me. Like it, uh, it was a very um, strong cultural shock. So I, I, I won't lie, I felt very alone. Uh, because of course, it takes a lot of time to make friends normally. But when you are in a country where people are so closed up, it, it will take even more. So it, it wasn't like easy. I remember when I arrived there, of course, I still didn't know much about 
uh, Finnish people, but like I remember I was just sitting in my hotel room and I just started crying. Like I was like, oh my god. So yeah, it wasn't an easy thing because you know I've always lived with my mom and dad. So and then all of a sudden, that boom. sounds very tough. Yeah, it was. I have to say it was. Like I remember crying with my friends and so on. So but you know. At what time? Do you did you feel it was becoming better, or you were clicking with more people around you? Um, it took years. Can I say? You can everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know because they are really very very closed up. So uh, it took me years to have some sort of Finnish friends. Uh, I managed to have foreigner friends. That was easier. So. When I, after a few years, managed to start having kind of a community, it was mostly foreigner people uh, struggling in a way, you know, with the isolation, with the fact of not getting well integrated and so on. Mm, so it, it took me years, but at work it has been always very tough because, you know, the supervision system is also very different. You are very, very independent. Like, okay, this is your project there. You, you you just do it. So I struggled a lot with uh, with that. So I would say several years before I felt somehow, mm, I can't say happier, but you know, better, at least outside of work. Work has always been a struggle for me, like because of my project, because of kind of the environment and so on. But uh, when I started having some friends, then it was somehow better. But it did took years. We need a support group. Yes, and definitely. Peers that we can hang out totally, with. Totally, totally, totally. Like, you know, even at work, you know, it's like, it, I remember the first months and almost first years, I was just at work all the time because, you know, I, I didn't know anybody. And it was like, you know, I would just go there, what, eight, eight something and leave, I don't know, seven, eight, go off any weekends. So... So that was my kind of reaction to, okay, I don't have anyone to know, nothing seems to be happening, so what else can I do? I will just work, so, yeah. Drowning yourself in yes, work, really. Yes, totally. Like, that, that, that was me. I, I totally agree with you. It doesn't sound too healthy. No. Well, my PhD wasn't healthy, like, <laughs> like you know, I, I struggle a lot, you know, I, I struggle with imposter syndrome, that was one reason why I, I always worked a lot, anxiety, and I would work hours and hours, because of course my project wouldn't work, I wouldn't get any results, so it, it was like a vicious circle, like, you know, until I burned out, until I was like, okay, I'm done, you know, so, but yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell me something about what imposter syndrome is? Because I've heard of it. Um, you know, it's like when you question everything in a way, like when you don't feel good enough for anything, when you feel that, you know, like when, when I was invited for this podcast, I was like, mm, I'm sure that they have seen something wrong. They have misunderstood. Some like, you know, when you question everything. And uh, when I was in Finland, it was like, oh God, am I good enough to be even in this lab? This, did the supervisor, my boss, saw something that wasn't there? Like, am I going to be good enough like my colleagues? Like, always questioning, a constant question of yourself. Uh, and even if something good would happen to me, it's like, okay, this is luck, probably. This is not because maybe I am like, you know a good scientist or like I deserved it like this was luck or they saw it wrong they gave it to me because like uh, so it's like a constant like the, it's really draining you know and I, I do struggle with that a lot like super a lot this very insecure feeling yes 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 and I am an insecure person like you know I, I don't have much self-confidence so I struggle a lot with like you know I don't know when I have like meetings or like though even I'm always very prepared and everything goes fine you know it's like I didn't have any major disaster or when I go to conferences it's like what I'm doing here why I'm here but for me it's like you know another level like you know like when people give me a gift oh my god I don't deserve this like you know you shouldn't like it's yeah <laughs> 
It's a shame you feel that way because yeah. we were obviously interested very much in your story because we've seen also through your social media accounts what you've been working on and yeah. that you're really out there and that's why we wanted to talk to you. Thank you. And also, <laughs> also during your PhD years, you have taught, you have published articles, you visited a university abroad. So looking back on it now, what do you think provided you with the most valuable skills that you will use in the future? And, and what would you recommend others to focus on? Let me see. I mean, going to conferences has, um, in a way, helped me in uh, being less shy, opening up myself. Because I also struggle a lot with that, that, you know, I won't ask for help. Uh, because I would feel like, again, I'm bothering somebody and so on. So... Uh, presenting my data, getting some kind of feedback, presenting my posters would somehow um, allow me to open up myself, which was then uh, important to finish up my project because my project really for the first seven, eight years didn't fly. Uh, so I, it allowed me to be less shy and to literally knock on every door to ask for help, like either a reagent, either a just, um, you know, an advice or something like that. Um, I mean, teaching and, yeah, um, teaching has helped me, but um, I, I guess it has helped me in approaching, uh, of course, people and um, how to kind of address better and how to, like, teach students and juniors. I've always, like, enjoyed teaching. I've also done a lot of one-to-one -one supervision. Maybe it's easier to ask it the other way around. You said that in uh, Finland and Helsinki University, maybe because of cultural or an institutional difference, um, you were very independent. And yes. You were kind of thrown into the deep to figure it out. Are there any skills now that you would have liked the university to have taught you or given you a kind of experience that would have made it easier for you? Um, you know, one argument that is very dear to me that I've suffered during my PhD is definitely mental health. So I would have loved my university to uh, do more about it, to help us students in recognize uh, things and uh, in being able and teach us how to better deal with, uh, with you know, I don't know, like stress, work-related stress or workload and so on. Uh, because I think that many students don't realize that. I myself didn't realize it. Like I was working so much and then I literally burned out. Like I, I then, you know, so we shouldn't get to that point. We shouldn't get to the point of like burning out. We should be helped before. So from that point of view, I think that the university should definitely do much more. And of course, like the whole kind of work environment, work community, improving that. Like, I, I, I really believe that the University of Health and Kick has a lot to improve and should do way more uh, towards those kind of things, mental health, working community, and so on. So would, this, would it be helpful to then just raise awareness? Or do you think it would also be helpful to have peers coming together in groups maybe yes. once a week or once a exactly. month to meet. That's, yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, you know, it's it's a mixture of things. Like uh, raise awareness and talk about these things, like even in an informal setting. Um, so I've been trying, like, you know, since I came back, I've been uh, trying to uh, kind of figure out how the university a bit better does things. Uh, like, okay, why there is no initiatives and so on. So I've been writing them a lot. Why you don't have this? Why we don't talk about, I don't know, abusive supervision? Why we don't talk about, um, you know, work-life balance? Why we don't talk about um, overworking? And, and all these kind of things. I mean, these are tiny things. And um, I often don't receive answers. And if I receive answer, it's like, oh, no, but we do. And we have like, you know, a one year event. And I try to explain, you know, one year event is not enough. Actually, we, we should have something more regular at the department level, at the faculty level, so that the university organizes one event. I believe it's not enough. Something ongoing, right? Yes, exactly. So uh, things organized by student, but also by supervisor, because this is not only an issue of students, of course. I mean, supervisor, PIs, they also suffer with like, you know, uh, workload and burnout and stress. I mean, I myself had many 
many PIs talking to me like, uh, you know, oh, I can't stand this anymore and this is so much work. Some Somebody was even crying with me. So we should never get to that point. We should be able to handle like our work in a more healthy, healthy way. So there are million things we could do all together as student and as PI supervisor and, you know, how do you call administrative like people like you know yeah like all together like uh, events uh, surveys and keeping an eye on things so but nope I think this is a very important topic about mental health of uh, young researchers but also on other levels within the university Um, and I've talked to other guests who've also said that it's also a bit of an institutional problem right like the university doesn't provide supervisors with a platform or with regulations then it trickles down from there yeah I, i agree totally talking about problems in institutions i also wanted to ask you what it was like to be a woman of pakistani origin in academia in italy and in finland did you experience that you were treated in a different way? Well, okay, regarding Italy, you know, um, I wasn't so much into um, kind of the uh, academic work when I was studying in the sense that I would go to the university, listen to my lesson and then come back. So I didn't have much occasion to uh, interact with peers or so on. So. Apart from kind of uh, maybe microaggressions, uh, like uh, primarily probably sexist, some racist, but like microaggression were the kind of um, main things. Uh, When I worked in a lab in uh, Italy, um, no, I think that in Italy there is a lot of this thing that, uh, okay, if you are a senior and if you are a student, you don't value. So you can be woman male or whatever so it's like uh, you 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 don't really count much uh, i worked two year and a half in a lab without any money so we weren't getting anything so i didn't experience much like there or you know also in a way i probably kind of lived in a semi-bubble uh, when I moved to Finland, I had way more, of course, interaction because I was a student, of course, but I was also a researcher. So I did volunteer job and so on. So I don't think that I was denied something because I was like, a, you know, a woman or a woman of uh, of color. But microaggression, those, yeah, that's that's like regular. But I wasn't denied anything. But, you know if I can be honest, like there isn't much you can deny like to, to a student, to a PhD student. Like I think that the mm, question would rise if I wanted to be there and I wanted to kind of go, you know, on a higher level, like would I would have been like, you know, have the same opportunities and so on. So, but that I didn't do. So I was kind of like as a woman, I had the same, I think, uh, possibilities. All right. Well, thank you for your honest answer. Thank you. The next thing is that I've always heard that science such as technology and biology are very male-dominated worlds. I'm not sure if you could actually say that humanities and social sciences are not, Mm -hmm. but there's this idea that your field attracts more men than women. Is that true? Uh, So I think that if we look at the level of when I was a student, uh, so when I was studying in Italy, uh, in my courses, actually, uh, female students were, we had more female students, uh, clearly. Um, so when I came to Finland, uh, in the courses I was teaching, on it, the courses I was attending, it wasn't so striking, the difference, but still female were more. I think that the issue, again, comes when you start to kind of raise the... Is it called ladder? Yeah, when you go up the ladder. So there, uh, the, the, the number of females go definitely down. And I mean, it, there, there has been research as well, like they call it the leaking pipe. Uh, the more you go up, the more you lose females along the way because of... So yes, it's true that in science-based uh, careers, males are definitely, definitely dominating a lot. 
That's a shame. Yes, it is. It is. It is. You should definitely work on gender awareness there. Yes, uh, absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. Like, I think that was quite clear, like, when I joined Finland. And I'm not saying that this is only a problem of Finland, but I could see around me that, okay, most of the people are actually males. So, you know, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a very unfortunate and common problem. Yeah. Do you think that this situation that is so unbalanced influences the work of female students and young researchers? Uh, well, I mean, not having uh, probably uh, a female kind of figure might influence because then it will show you uh, that, okay, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Like, you know, when all your teachers are male uh, and you don't have maybe strong female figures then I'm like okay maybe this is not what I'm supposed to be doing then of course there is a lot of the um, societal kind of ideas that you know women should be doing this this and that and not this this and that so but yeah I think that it's important to show that you know you as a female you as a woman can do anything you want to do that there is nothing that is just boys and there is nothing that is just girls so yeah I think that we should kind of work towards that, that we should show that, okay, you know, we can do things. We can, like, you know, do whatever we want to do. So Definitely. And having talked about institutional issues, be it coming from an ethnic minority or being a woman in a male-dominated world, there also come some issues sometimes with the hierarchy, right? And how... Uh, people up there look back down on people who are lower on the ladder, as you just mentioned. Yeah, I had some uh, sort of experience about uh, uh, what is like abuse of power, uh, or at least I think is abuse of power, though, of course, the people that did what they did thought, didn't thought that. But when I was at the um, University of Helsinki last year, actually, this happened. Uh, I was uh, promised a job uh, by a PI in my research program. And uh, then he started um, somehow dating me. Uh, of course, it wasn't like anything, you know, official or it wasn't like, you know, a real kind of a relationship. But, you know, we were seeing each other. We were often seen together in campus and we were living together from campus. So many people knew that there was something. But so it wasn't official, but it was visible. Yeah, it was. I, I many people, uh, at least several people, knew that. Okay, there must be something, you know, uh, because we were seen together every day, having coffees, or like I would visit like coffees, and we would leave sometimes from work together, and so on. Uh, so we started uh, kind of seeing each other for just a few months until then things unfolded but uh, he actually I believe uh, was just using me because he was actually in a relationship with another woman uh, who was uh, actually working in the same campus where I work so knowing the same people wow. but but yeah tell me about it but living abroad so when the kind of girlfriend was somehow back or he was there where she lives, then, oh, look, I don't need you anymore. I got my feelings back and so on. So, of course, he uh, it's important for me to say that he always told me he was single. Like, he never told me, obviously, because otherwise I wouldn't not, like, you know, get involved. He always told me he was single, but actually he wasn't. So then... Uh, it was, you know, sorry, I'm like, this is very That's tough okay. for me. <laughs> um, so then he kind of, I believe, hoped that I would keep quiet because of the job offer. But I was, you know, very upset, of course, because I felt used for a very long time. I mean, like, he, he says that uh, I don't know what you were thinking and also in the HR meeting. But actually, I have more than 100 pages of messages within like three to four months. So we were talking a lot. We were like, you know, really messaging a lot. And then um, it happened so that, uh, so I cut with him, of course. I don't want to deal with someone that, you know, has no respect for other people like this way. 
and uh, so after I think two three weeks then he sent me an email in the middle of the night threatening me of legal actions and of dragging me to the faculty because somebody said something uh, to the girlfriend he was cheating on uh, somebody that I never spoke to so this person said that I was spreading rumors so then he had to do something for for her and he thought that the wisest thing was to send me a threatening email without having proofs. So then this this was sorry, yeah, you were going to say something. That's all right. <laughs> I don't I don't really want to cut you off. I just no, wanted no, no. to emphasize that one of the main issues in this whole story that was very difficult and emotional for you of course, yeah, is that this person abused his power, right? In the system that he was in, in the role that he has, the position he has, um, which is uh, your superior, yeah, right, yeah. as a PhD student. Yeah, I, I agree with that, though people probably don't think that. Uh, I don't know if it's like because, you know, they don't want anything kind of to be seen because of, I believe that this was wrong. I mean, what were you going to obtain by using a student like... Uh, just for a few months until your girlfriend was back. I mean, of course, you're going to damage her work. You're going to damage her health. I mean, he knew that this would have happened. So many people don't think that this is abuse of power. I do believe that this is abuse of power. Like talking to different associations and different people, expert in this, everybody tells me that this is abuse of power. And just because it wasn't consensual that, you know, he didn't force me, it doesn't mean that it's not abuse of power. And of course, when you threaten me, you are a PI threatening a student of legal actions that you will drag me, you will open a legal case, you will make a complaint to the faculty. The girlfriend was supposed to make a complaint to the faculty because one person that I have never talked to, that of course is friend with my friend, but I have never talked to, he says something in the middle of the night in a party, like I couldn't go to campus for months. Like, I had to write my PhD thesis stuck at home. It's definitely abuse of power. And not only threatening with legal actions that then eventually had you being scared of coming back onto campus, but it started with him offering a job. Yes. And yes. you don't have the job right now, do you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> because he don't. was in the position to yeah. make that offer. Yes. I, and I, you were wrapping up your PhD in search for a job. Yes, I, I totally believe that he fully took advantage of my situation because I was in the last year, because he offered me the job around October, November uh, 2018. 2019 was my last year. I was finishing, uh, my contract was ending in August. So he took advantage of that. He took advantage of the fact that I still haven't published my first author article that I needed to defend. He took advantage of uh, the huge amount of work, the stress I was going through. So I don't know if it was like, you know, if he thought it that way, but I really believe that he, he I, I I want to believe that it's impossible for you not to know that you would have damaged a person with your actions. So he offered me the job. It was just a year contract. And uh, then, you know, everything unfolded. He started approaching me, messaging me, and then, you know, so. But I don't know, many people, my university doesn't think that it was wrong because I also had an HR meeting. I demanded an HR meeting, actually, because they didn't like... Um, um, so my head, the head of my research program even didn't hear my version of the facts because the, this PI went to the head of my former research program and he was like, uh, he just heard him and then he didn't bother to listen to me. And then he uh, contacted HR and they were like suggesting a therapy session with the PI because of course they didn't, like the, the PI hasn't said the truth. He probably just said something like that. We were dating or something. And the head of the research program even didn't click. So after that part ended, I demanded an HR meeting. I said, no, I want an HR meeting because I cannot go to campus. And HR was like, oh, is it okay if we don't have the HR meeting? Because the PI says that for him, the case is closed. And I was like, no, it's not okay. It's not. That's very one-sided. Oh my God. Like, seriously. What about me? 
So you don't really feel like anyone was backing you up or believed your side of the story during this whole thing? Only my supervisor. Only. She was the only one who stood by me, who was there uh, at the meeting with me at the HR meeting and who said to him that you did wrong, that you uh, damaged her health, that you damaged her work, that she couldn't go to campus. She was the only one. And even the woman that came with him, which is kind of his supervisor, uh, in the right moment when my supervisor was pointing fingers at him, she said, no, it's a misunderstanding. He didn't mean to. And I'm like, really? So that's what came out from the HR meeting. It was a misunderstanding. So I still fail to see how somebody starting dating, even if it's for a short time, a student after a job promise, while you're already in a relationship, is a misunderstanding. That I still cannot understand. But yeah, I, I have to say that uh, many people in private said that, oh, this is wrong because, of course, you are a student and so on. But then, no, they they didn't, like... Uh... Step up. No, they don't. Especially, I, I mean, I don't know about other countries, but in Finland, that's not going to happen. And, I mean, I always say that I did also wrong. Like, you know, I did send uh, an angry email to him um, that I myself mentioned in the HR meeting because I said, okay, yes, I did this wrong. Like, I sent this email, but nothing happened after that email. No one said ever a single thing to him. That's the thing here. Because somebody said something to the girlfriend he was cheating on that I had to go through all that. So it's it's totally wrong. But yeah, no, they don't know. No, they just keep quiet. And once I went through this, I realized that this is actually very common, that tendentially people will keep quiet. They don't want to, I don't know, is it because it gives, it gives like a bad image or something like that? But I mean, you know, me speaking up, cannot be any, because I was accused of, you know, ruining his reputation, damaging his work. It's the typical victim blaming again. Oh my, yeah, I had a lot of slut shaming, a lot of gaslighting, a lot of victim blaming. Don't worry, I had it all. So, yeah. Well, I'm so sorry to hear Thank that you, you have to go through that. Yeah. And yeah. it must have been very difficult for you to open up about this. Yeah. And I think you're very brave. Thank for you. sharing your story with us. Thank and I also you. want to thank you so, so much for it. I think it's very important <laughs> to talk about these issues, right? Thank you. That thank exists you. also in academia yes. in order for them to be addressed and for the situation yeah, to be improved. Yeah. I would like to continue on a little bit of more positive notes. Yes. Um, because despite the hardship that you faced, you did manage to pull through and finish your PhD. And you're now a doctor. The first doctor in my family, if I may say. Oh, that's wonderful. Well done. And yes. I want to congratulate you to that again. So, Thank you. cheers. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. So, then my question is, I know that you finished back in December. Yes. And you're back in Rome at the moment. And, of course, we had the whole situation with Corona for quite a few months, stopping yes. a lot of opportunities. But what is your next project? And then the last question, obviously, is what are you going to do with that? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I've been looking for jobs because my uh, kind of project would be to relocate to UK where my brother lives and where my nephew and niece live. Nice. I would like to be closer to them because, you know, uh, when I was in Finland, I was in a way, of course, it's always Europe, but it's like almost five hours flight, like four half hours, uh, hours flight. And I would very rarely come back home or go to London. So I felt the need of being close to my family again. So I'm trying to relocate there. Uh, I'm primarily looking towards the industry, uh, companies, uh, positions like uh, lab manager, lab coordinator that allow me still to be in a lab because that's something that I really enjoyed. Like during my PhD, I also kind of became uh, a lab manager because uh, I enjoyed that part, uh, but also because my, prof uh, my supervisor got a professorship in another city. So our lab stayed in Helsinki and she was with another lab in another city. So then I was taking care, you know, of the consumables, ordering, and we relocated lab two times. So we, uh, I took charge of many things. So that's a part that I really, really enjoy. So I'm trying to 
kind of look uh, into jobs that would allow me to do that, then uh, that's that's something that I'm trying to uh, to do at the moment. Okay, fingers crossed that you'll soon Thank find you. something. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> now we only have a few short questions. Okay. My first question is, what was the most significant conference that you've been to? Okay, let's start with the fact that I do not enjoy conferences, if I can say right. that. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah I, I don't know, it always kind of makes me feel, you know, I'm this, uh, I'm a, an introvert, uh, so I have like a bit of issues, I'm very shy and so on. But if I should mention one, probably I would mention the first one where I gave uh, my international, my first international talk, which if I remember correctly, I think it was in Denmark. And I always remember it because I always say that, yeah, uh, right before my talk, I was just crying, literally. I was sitting on my bench and I was crying. <laughs> I swear, I oh, swear. No. Yes, I know. <laughs> but then it went fine, you know, it went fine. And it made me realize that okay it's not nice but it's not horrible like that I can do that as well that you know it's you know it, it all you have always to think that okay it's your work you have been working on that like you know so you know it somehow by heart so you shouldn't somehow have that kind of fear or horror or stuff like that so probably I would mention that all right sounds good have you received a scholarship uh, yeah, I have, uh, you mean grants, right? Yeah, I have yes. received uh, several grants. Um, so during my 10 years, I've been um, kind of in a mixture of some salary, um, like some periods with a salary and some periods with a grant. So yeah, I have received personal scholarships and also travel grants. Uh, that I've been, of course, using for the conferences and so on. So, yeah, some, some of them I got, yeah. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. And what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Imposter syndrome. Uh, wait, uh, let me think. Um, it's not real. You can yeah. get past it. <laughs> um, you know... Um, Okay, I've been doing basic research um, with uh, with autophagy. So, what I discovered with Becklin and uh, with the proteins that I was studying, um, it wasn't anything new, but it was uh, data added somehow a confirmation of something that was. Uh, somehow already known. So, for example, the fact that uh, uh, backlin is important and that the ER um, endoplasmic reticulum, which is a subcellular compartment, is uh, thought to be very important for autophagosome biogenesis. So, my study confirmed that once more that backlin in the ER. Uh, is very important for autophagosome biogenesis. And also regarding the other proteins that I was studying, uh, I confirmed once more that they are required for the later stages of autophagosome formation. So uh, all my results are like adding to like this bigger picture that is already there. So I would say that probably if we specifically look at, the, at my results. See, that sounds legit. No imposter <laughs> syndrome needed there. Oh my god. <laughs> Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Well, I have many friends that I look up to. But if I should really mention one person, probably I would mention um, one of my friends. Uh, she's German. And uh, I got to know her recently in the kind of few years back uh, in one of the courses I was teaching. And uh, she also had, you know, uh, a lot of struggles and uh, she has gone through a lot. But she has always been, you know, in a way like a train that she will just go. So she has gained and reached very, uh, very high. She has successfully defended in between of a pandemic in the middle of a pandemic so I, I, I really like uh, admire her kind of is it resilience the right word like never giving yeah. up sounds very cool <laughs> thank you
And then my very last question of today is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Okay, well now, uh, of course, I don't have uh, a job, but uh, if I would look back, uh, usually it would be a nice meal, a nice meal, uh, watching something or listening to some music, uh, like something that I don't have to think. Like even when I watch something, it has to be something allow me to say so stupid that I don't have to think what I'm watching like you know it, I'm not saying that I don't watch anything serious but like when I'm really tired I, I like to just yeah practically do nothing so I like so to just, just turn it all off yes yes that's very important for me because you know I take a lot uh, I was used to take my work a lot home and uh, so after I burned out I decided that okay I would try Often I failed, but like, you know, just, you know, don't think, try not to think. Uh, so like good music and food, food is, uh, you know, I, I love eating. So food is very important. I like cooking, I like baking. So all those kind of things uh, really help me to kind of de-stress and relax. Definitely. Yeah. So as, as you can see, nothing like super extraordinary. <laughs> Very simple. I like simple things in a way. I don't know. Like I enjoy those. But that's yeah. also what's important, right? Yeah. If you use your brain the whole day, you need yes. to turn it off to exactly. relax. Exactly. That's the point. I agree. I agree. <laughs> well, it was wonderful to have you with us today, Tahira. Thank and you. thank you for sharing your journey. Thank you. I would also like to thank the audience, our listeners and followers for their support. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for what are you going to do with that. Cool. Thank what you. kind of music do you listen to? Uh, hmm. uh, R&B, Bollywood, Pakistani music. <laughs> so, yes. Like, uh, I, I, I listen to... I have a very kind of, uh, like, uh, ample uh, kind of taste. But... Um, I think probably a lot of 